0: So for um, those of you that are coming in now or have come in in the last five minutes, I handed out, and you might see them um, on some of your tables, uh, just a brief like three-question survey, and it's for me. It's not for the conference, although it's to help make this track better. I put the rest of them just outside, so when you leave, you don't need to get up and get them now. Please don't. Um, You know, if you wouldn't mind filling them out and just leaving them on the tables outside and I'll pick them up. And so I know that we all go to all the different lectures throughout the conference, and all of the content, I think, is pertinent to all practitioners that take care of patients with pain. But I'm really interested in hearing from you what you would expect out of an APP track and what you're not getting or, or what you liked about it. I think it would be really helpful putting yet next year's track together, and we're hoping to just grow this. So thank you for being here. Um, my uh, boss in the uh, ballroom is giving his talk, and so I wasn't sure how many people were going to choose Sean Mackey over Teresa Malik. And you guys won the prize. Thank you very much for being here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, complex uh, case management today, and um, with with pain patients. And uh, I've got the case studies intermixed with uh, didactic content, so hopefully, this will be a nice way to kind of learn a little bit and uh, see how it's used in clinical practice and use a little bit more. So, um, thank you again for coming. These are my disclosures. Double done. Um, So, we're going to talk about the pain pathways briefly, um, just so you have a concept. A a lot of you, um, particularly if you've been in practice for uh, a number of years, kind of understand the concept of the ascending and the descending pain pathways, but I think it's an important concept to just review. Uh, so we're all kind of talking the same language, and you understand um, how different medications and how different um, uh, pharmacotherapeutics and uh, non-pharmacotherapeutics work in the pain, different pain pathways. We're going to talk a lot about multimodal management. So that's used with medications, but also um, other behavioral management uh, therapies, physical therapy, and such. And then uh, we're going to evaluate the complex cases with the didactic information that you learned today. So again, if you were to ask Sean Mackey what is pain, he would tell you, um, he'd probably give you an hour dissertation, um, but he would definitely also tell you that pain is complicated. Um, it involves an intricate interplay of chemicals and signaling in the central nervous system, and I would agree with that. It's a very academic uh, definition. This is an even more academic definition. Again, we gotta define terms, so we're all speaking the same language when it comes to uh, talking about treating pain. So, the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage and described in terms of such damage. So, I think that's the definition that uh, we all adhere to, particularly those of us that are in academia, but definitely those of us that are in research. I really like this definition the best. So this definition um, is, um, was a statement by a nurse McCaffrey. She's a, a pain researcher, and she says that pain is whatever the um, experiencing patient says it is, and it exists whenever he or she says it does. Again, so it really makes it more subjective, brings it into the subjective realm, and it also um, allows uh, one to understand the emotionality of pain and how, it experience, how the patient experiences it and how it affects quality of life. The Institutes of Medicine um, felt that um, pain was an important topic and they um, reached out to healthcare providers nationally um, to get an idea and get help with putting together a a diagram or a script to help kind of put uh, arms around the problem and then talk about how we can best use our healthcare dollars to manage it and what's important in terms of chronic pain. And um, the uh, first thing that came out of this work, that it's and the number one reason that people are out of work, it's the leading cause that pa- uh, patients seek medical attention, it's costly to the nation, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, um, and it's more expensive to the US uh, healthcare budget than heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. And I think of, of everything else that that 200-page document states, I think that's the most telling, and that's really when you're looking at where we're gonna spend our healthcare dollars, um, that is, is one of the reasons that then um, government will pay attention um, and manage any kind of chronic disease. And and pain being so costly, we're getting a lot of resources uh, spent on assessment, management, treatment, and education about pain. Um, and then uh, Dr. Turkin Associates in 2013 um, stated that chronic, chronic pain is the most universal human stress there is. And I, again, I would agree to that. And we've had to start thinking about pain differently than just Um, being chemically mediated or thermally mediated or um, insult, but really how it affects the person and the emotional aspect of pain. All right, just defining a a few terms for you again so we continue to speak the common language, pain terminology. We really like to think of uh, pain in terms of different classifications, particularly when we're looking at uh, short-term as well as long-term management. So acute pain, and I apologize if this is repetitive, Um, I think very few of you came to my uh, 7 a.m. talk where I talked about this uh, ad nauseum. Um, And uh, so you can just put your head down for a couple of minutes since you were here so early. But acute pain, transient known causality, um, uh, predictable, usually will respond to um, uh, opioid therapies or um, um, immediate therapies, and then it dissipates when primary healing occurs. And then you have chronic pain, which is a disease entity onto itself, outlasts its protective benefit, um, often unknown causality, um, and it's the, it's the pain that becomes the chronic disease itself and that people struggle with um, so difficultly. And then there's breakthrough pain. So breakthrough pain is that acute and chronic pain or that flare pain that is the most unpredictable and fear-provoking in patients. Pain characteristics, nociceptive versus neuropathic. Again, understanding nociceptive pain, somatic, visceral pain, where that pain's coming from, what that pain characteristic is versus neuropathic pain allows you to think about different treatment modalities and what's going to be the most effective. If you have a patient that has mixed pain presentation, which a lot of them often do, that's maybe more neuropathic in origin, or you can say that's a pure neuropathic pain presentation, trigeminal neuralgia, sharp shooting, lancinating pain, do you want to throw an opioid at that, or do you want to start a gabapentinoid in that, right? So it kind of helps you decide the best treatment modality, and then you can decide the risks and benefits of the medication or the treatment that you're gonna use. All right, so here's a pictorial of the pain pathway, and then I'll, sh- I'll break down the ascending and the descending pain pathways for you um, in the next slide, but I always think a pit- picture is worth a thousand words. So you've got um, fibers in the periphery, you've got the uh, A fibers and the C fibers, A fibers being broken down into beta and delta. They all have different um, uh, transmission times to them. So you get an injury in the periphery, you get an activation of nociceptors that that, uh, activate uh, these nerves, and then you get an ascension of the pain response through the spinal cord up to the brain. It hits the brain, you get the the perception of pain, which is is really what, what... makes the, um, the person understand and, and appreciate that they're in pain, and they either pull their hand off of that hot stove, or if it's more chronic pain, then it starts really becoming part of life, and actually you see changes in the brain with the chronic pain. When it hits the brain, you get an activation of uh, other uh, neurotransmitters, other chemicals in the brain, and then that activates the descending pain pathways, and hopefully you get a resolution of the pain or a return of homeostasis. And it's really that simple, uh, for all intents and purposes, unless you're a biochemist and you're really looking at developing new pharmaceuticals and different ways to attack the pain pathway. For our um, practicality, in terms of clinicians, it's as simple as that, right? So understanding that will take you much farther than any of your colleagues in terms of understanding pain pathophysiology. Right. so we've got the ascending pain pathways. So it, again, it starts in the periphery, you get injured nerves, you get an activation of the uh, A and the C um, fibers, ascends up through the dorsal horn, through the spinal cord, um, and up to the brain, and then you get activation. These are the areas of the brain, the insula, the amygdala, prefrontal cortex, all areas of the brain that have been identified through research as being activated um, in in pain states, acute as chronic pain, and then you get an activation of those chemicals like I talked about, and then you um, will start seeing the descending pain pathway become more active. And we have pharmaceuticals, we have treatments that act on both the ascending and the descending pain pathways, but it's in the descending pathways where you'll see activation uh, of things like serotonin, norepinephrine, noradrenaline, the endogenous opiates, GABA, which then promote healing or um, response to the injury or the insult. Does that make sense? I know it's, it's, very, it's, not, it's, it's not that complicated, but it's not that difficult either. All right, so this is the first case study that we'll weave throughout the rest of the present, uh, presentation. This is Mr. Smith. Guess what kind of pain Mr. Smith has? What do we often see in our offices? What do we often see in the emergency room? What's the most common complaint with pain that we see in our offices? Chronic low back pain. So Mr. Smith um, is a 48-year-old male with chronic low back pain. He's got chronic opioid use. He was referred to because of worsening pain, decreased functionality, um, and he's had a steady increase in his opioid use. Not uncommon. He continues to work, yay, because those of us that manage pain on a regular basis know that regardless of our treatment modality, we wanna minimize side effects, but regardless of our treatment modality, we wanna keep that patient functional whatever that means to them, and keep their quality of life um, significant for them. So he's still working, yay, that's a really good sign. Um, but he's finding it harder to work full-time, and so that uh, want this is the time that we wanna go ahead and intervene. So what are your challenges to pain assessment? This is only if you're in Vegas. So if the patient's medically complicated, So if this is a patient that presents to your office hypertension, diabetes, um, uh, congestive heart failure, COPD, you're going to probably manage that patient differently. You're going to think about managing that patient differently and spend more time with that patient than you would the 48-year-old with chronic low back pain and other comorbidities, right? So medical comorbidities are huge. We We think about that more managing our patients. Language barriers. Oh, my gosh. I hate that I get 15 minutes to see every single patient regardless if they speak English, if they come in crutches and it takes them 15 minutes just to get into my office, if they speak Russian, if I have to get an interpreter, I hate that, right? And I know you guys hate that too. But the reality of it is we have patients, we live in a multicultural universe and we get patients that have language barriers, cultural barriers, uh, educational barriers, and this is just the, the world that we live in. So it makes it very complicated. Fear, fear of the practitioner, fear of the patient about addiction, um, expectations. What's the patient's expectations? You get that 48-year-old in your office, chronic low back pain. Are they expecting to be 100% better when they leave or when you finish your treatment with them in two to three weeks? Or are they willing to take some um, pain Uh, to continue to do the things that they need to do and limit the medication use, or um, are they expecting that they're not going to get any better and they just want to sit in your office and be and moan the whole time that they're there, right? So what are their expectations and do they jive with yours? And it's okay to say, you know, your expectations far, you've had chronic pain for 15 years, you're on X, Y, and Z medication, you want to be 100% better and you want to go run a marathon? I can't help you. I'm sorry. That's okay you know, this is what I can have to offer you. Um, Prior exposures, so we know that patients um, that have had prior opioid exposure, benzodiazepine exposure, um, maybe THC exposure, um, exposure uh, to uh, substance abuse history, either active or or past tense, um, or uh, problems with other substances, or chronic pain, make that patient a lot more difficult to manage So again, it's realistic expectations. What what are your expectations of the patient? What What are your expectations of yourself? Difficult personalities, codependence, secondary gain, okay? It's not easy. You know it. That's why you're here. And God love you for practicing in the field that you do. So let's get back to Mr. Smith. So Mr. Smith, back pain started about five years ago. He was lifting a heavy box. He heard a pop. Oh, my goodness, right? Happens all the time. Um, he has axial low back pain right in the middle of his back. It's just right of midline. No, no radiculopathy at this point. And this is the lovely pain diagram that he painted for you. Um, uh, so the duration of the pain, five years as we talked about. Um, he's had progressive muscle spasm associating with this pain, and he's decreased his exercise, oh no, over the last six to 12 months. So he's continuing to work. He's not, you know, he's, he's like on the verge of maybe going part-time. Um, but he's given up his leisure and his exercise activities because of pain or decreased them. He uh, describes the pain as achy, crampy. Um, he's got a sh- occasional sharp shooting pain, but again, it's localized. Um, things that um, aggravate his pain, stress. So if he's had a long day at work, if he um, has to um, discipline the children, if he has to worry um, about um, complaining coworkers, all of that stress just compounds his pain, and those are days where his pain is just like out of control. Um, Standing, sitting, lifting. Um, The associated symptoms, he's had uh, gradual worsening constipation, maybe or maybe not related to the increase in opiate use that he's had over the um, period of time. He's got low libido, he's got um, mild depression. Um, The things that relieve his pain that he tells you rest, uh, and stress reduction will help him. So on those days over the weekend when he doesn't have to go back to work, he's feeling a little bit better, uh, when he doesn't have to be so active, and he definitely finds help with his medications, particularly his opioids and his non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, what has he tried in the past? So he's tried gabapentin. He's been at a reasonable dose. He was able to get up to 600 milligrams um, three times a day, but he just couldn't go any higher, and at that dose he didn't find it was effective for his pain. Um, he was using Celebrex, 100 milligrams twice a day, um, but what had happened was, as he was getting older and life was going on, he did that for um, a few years, he started to develop hypertension, um, and he was placed on the low-dose aspirin for his other risk factors for a family history of heart disease. Um, and he's been using um, the uh, Norco uh, about six to eight tablets a day. He's also uh, tried massage and physical therapy, but doesn't do that regularly. All right, so the history that you're taking away, he's uh, a young-ish man, um, fully employed, he's got a family, he's got a history of hypertension, chronic low back pain, mild depression. Um, surgical history is pretty benign, but the takeaway with this is he did have surgery. It was an insult to him. He was able to just use a couple of Vicodin for two days and then he got off of it and, and it worked well for him. He's got moderate alcohol consumption. So he, uses a, he drinks two to three beers a night um would you consider that moderate okay we can keep this interactive i i uh when i get closer to the end of time i'll I'll probably hurry through it but i I think we have plenty of time to talk about all this stuff so okay two to three peers a night uh no tobacco no other drug use and he's been married um, uh, for a number of years he's got one ten-year-old daughter The diagnostics that he brings with us, he did have a FlexX um, spine film done. This is five years ago, uh, shortly after he injured himself initially, um, and it it was showed that it was normal for age. So on your examination, he's um, a bit uh, mildly hypertensive. Um, He is A and O times three. He looks appropriately groomed, well-kept. He makes good eye contact. He doesn't have any pressured speech. He communicates with you appropriately. Um, But he is having some wincing and grimacing with his movements. You know, you watch the people walk, you watch them get into your chair, you watch them get out of your chair. You know, are they able to do that um, fluidly or do they have some difficulty? Um, uh, His cardiovascular, his lung, his abdominal exam, everything is benign. Um, He does have some positive facet loading maneuvers. So when you palpate his back and you make him hyperextend, it does hurt localized in that area. So reproducible pain. Um, but he doesn't have any uh, neural impingement signs, and he's got a little bit of uh, muscle spasm. All right. So I think if nothing else, if we get nothing else out of this lecture today, take away this slide. All right. So this is the way that you should think about your most um, simple patient that you're managing in your office to the most complex. So it's the use of multimodal analgesia, So knowing that you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox, and really focusing on the biopsychosocial approach. So it is focusing on patient expectations, your expectations, patient's fears, patient's belief system, their resilience, looking at patients that are at higher risk for poor outcomes and treating them differently within the bandwidth of what you can do. Um, there's a lot of uh, patient databases coming online in a lot of different medical specialties, and um, pain is one. And it's looking at patients' risk factors for resilience, and if you have that dollar, you have that healthcare care dollar, you have that dollar in your office, where are you going to spend 50 cents of that dollar or 75 cents of that dollar and make the most impact on global change in this patient's care? Is it going to be on that epidural? Is it going to be on two brand-name medications that are very expensive? Is it going to be on psychology, right? So if you have a patient that scores really high on catastrophizing, on um, stress, anxiety, and you don't treat that or you don't address that, I don't care how many epidurals that you do for them, I don't care how much opioid you give them, I don't care how much gabapentin you give them, this patient's going to continue to be in your office for years and years and years and years afterwards, all right? So the very important things to think about. Those of you that do workers' comp, and, and I'm not meaning to you know, um, poke fun or you know, come down on workers' comp, but is there a secondary gain? Are there, we ask things like, is, you know, I was involved in a motor vehicle accident. Is there litigation pending with this? I'm not saying treat the patient differently, but just understand that patients may have secondary gains not to get better. All right, so you have to protect yourself. You have to do what's right for the patient and be safe got a lot of tools in your toolbox in terms of the things that you can use for multimodal analgesia. So the complementary treatment modalities, acupuncture, acupressure, um, physical therapy. Get to know your physical therapist in your community. Not all physical therapists, not all acupuncturists, not all chiropractors are created equal. So get to know who's in your community, who you can refer to, who you trust, and who you have a good communication rapport with. Who sends you letters back? And says, you know, this is what I recommend. Let's work. It's a team approach. You can't do this just in isolation. Um, nutrition. Nutrition as that becomes more available, again, is really important. I think we have a lecture at the conference this year about um, um, nutraceuticals, nutrition, um, uh, diet for chronic pain. I think it's a real important um, area not to miss if you can. There's books out there the patients can get. Uh, behavioral modification. Um, psychology, psychiatry, um, get your mental health uh, practitioners involved um, to help you with these patients that really score high in catastrophizing or other um, uh, uh, psychosocial comorbidities. Medications, you've got a host of medications, and we'll go through that in the case study. So you've got opiates appropriate in a certain patient population. Nowadays, a lot of things that you need to think about. Things that we think about already, right, in terms of safe, safe opioid use, but now you're accountable to make sure that you document this, right? Um, gabapentinoids, medications that you would use for neuropathic pain. Um, if you're going to use an opiate, is one preferable over the other for the patient's situation, the kind of pain, um, and the, um, the living situation? Uh, antidepressant medications, again, educating your patients. If you're going to use a non or you're going to use an antidepressant, why are you giving it to them? Is it because you know that they're catastrophizers and they have anxiety and they have depression and you're like maybe the third or the fourth practitioner that they've come to and the first thing out of the drawer is a prescription for an antidepressant, they're, they're gonna tune you out. So if you give them an antidepressant without telling them why you're giving it to them, you know, and if they're, if they're educated, show them the data that says, you know, Cymbalta, and I am sorry that I'm using drug names, but you know, medications that have indications for chronic pain you know, irrespective of their antidepressant um, properties, this is why I'm giving it to you. And if it makes you feel better emotionally, that's a good thing too. And then um, your interventional therapies. So there's things that you can do in your office for muscle spasm. You could do trigger point injections. Very benign, very easy to do, very reimbursable, um, and can be really helpful. And if you have that new patient in your office that you don't think is, uh, will, will just fall apart on you if you stick a needle in their back and you do a trigger point muscle injection, and you can get them feeling that much better on the first visit that you see them, even though you know it's going to wear off in you know, a few hours when the a local anesthetic metabolizes, you've made a friend for life, hopefully in a good way. And then they'll listen to the other things that you want to talk about later on down the road. Right? Um, also, there's, there's good use for things like uh, uh, peripheral nerve blocks and epidurals, and, and we'll talk more about that. All right, so again, I'm not going to belabor this because you're going to get a lot of education on the CDC and the FDA um, guidelines and recommendations, and, I'm, and you're probably all at least aware of it in name, um, but those are the websites for you if you actually want to go and look at them. General Gestalt. Um, We're expected to consider other alternatives first. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. Um, Opiates when other options fail. So the CDC guidelines aren't saying, no, you can't use opiates. It's saying use opiates responsibly, okay? And then don't forget the other stuff. Um, Historically, it's been easy just to write that prescription, particularly at 4 or 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Okay, you've got new pain. You know, All right, here's your Vicodin. Three tablets, go home versus talking about other treatment modalities or starting a different medication. Um, Start low, um, lowest effective dose um, for the shortest duration of time, and that's specifically talking about opioids. Um, Implement uh, pain treatment agreements, which I think we all do, and if we don't, we should get used to doing it. There's a lot of examples out there on the Internet. Um, And then... um, Understand that you're going to, again, be held responsible for monitoring. And whatever that monitoring looks like and, and makes sense in your practice, you have, to, you have to come up with some kind of a, a regimen that you do, and I think do it non-discriminately in your patient population. Uh, make a routine of it so that you have something, if you do go to court, or you do need to justify um, why you're using a particular treatment modality, um, that you know this is what you do, and you're keeping yourself safe, and you're keeping your practice safe, and you're keeping your patients safe. Um, and then um, the FDA specifically is recommending the development and use of um, abuse-deterrent medications. And if you come back for Jeremy Adler's later, lecture later on this afternoon, he's gonna be talking about abuse-deterrent formulations, the pros and the cons. All right, so um, monitoring and compliance, very important um, to do, as we talked about. And one of the, one of the ways that you decide um, how you're going to monitor and how important it is and how um, routinely it is is by risk stratifying patients that you're going to start on opioid therapy. Again, I don't think that this is new to any of you, but I think it's important to continue to hear. It's like doing um, CPR re education, right? We all do it, it's all important. As healthcare providers, we're expected to know how to do CPR, but if you never do it, You know, you forget, how many compressions do I do? How many? So I think that constantly hearing about this, it it will become routine. So risk stratify your patients. Again, there's a lot of risk stratification tools out there on the Internet. This is probably simple. Essentially, the commonality to all of them, you're looking at low, moderate, or high risk, and then you monitor, you cater your monitoring depending upon the level of risk. All right. This is something that I document, I actually have this on a dot phrase in my electronic medical record. This is something that I document um, in the medical record with every opioid prescription that I fill. Now, I have documented some time earlier um, on that first um, prescription that I wrote for an opioid, the conversation, the patient assessment uh, agreement, and all of that, but I document this with every single opiate prescription that I fill. So I want to know, is the patient, and because it shows my degree of um, diligence in monitoring the patient, is the patient been on opiates for five years? Are they still getting analgesic benefit from it? Is it still helping them? If it's not, then why are you using it, right? Is the patient able to achieve a, a level of activities of daily living which is appropriate for them, for their family, for the community, for what they need to do? If not, why am I still using it, right? And how do I go to court and say I justify this prescription every single month, or so every three months, but the patient didn't report any improvement in activities of daily living, no analgesic benefit, you know, I, I have a hard time justifying the continuation of that prescription. Adverse effects, are they using their medications despite adverse effects? And what are those adverse effects? And does the patient even recognize it? I'll tell you a brief story. I had a patient in my clinic that I inherited on chronic uh, methadone therapy. And she'd been on it for a number of years, and we continued to go up because she became um, tolerant to the medication, and she needed more to get the same effect. And when I inherited her, she had already had a full workup by gastroenterology because she was having a lot of GI issues. And nobody really said, well, could this be your methadone therapy, and when did this start? But she got sent to gastroenterology, and they did their whole battery of tests, and she was really no better. And, And a lot of painful invasive tests that she went through. So I had her for about a year or so, and then she started developing urinary retention. And so I started putting the picture together, and I'm like, do you really don't you maybe this has something to do with the methadone, the chronic methadone that you're using? And she's like, No, absolutely not. I'm getting pain relief from this, I'm not really doing anything differently, but I'm having a lot of these adverse effects that she didn't recognize was correlated with her medication. And I'm not sure exactly why, but I said, yes, I can't continue to prescribe the methadone. Uh, with the symptoms that you're showing me. And so um, she wasn't willing to give it up completely, but I could talk her into um, decreasing it significantly. She was able then to start voiding on her own. She still had some um, uh, GI side effects. But it's, you know, you're going to be the outside one or even elicit the family. You know, are these new symptoms? Does the patient's behavior seem different to you? What has changed? Um, but patients, if that's the only tool that they have, they'll hold on to that for dear life. Um, and then aberrant behaviors. Are they using medications despite harm? Um, are they um, not showing up to work? Are there marital comments? Um, are patients doctor shopping, asking for early refills? So document all of that. And it's pretty simple if you have it kind of on a standard phrase that you just import with each document, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. All right, so back to Mr. Smith. So he's a 48-year-old male, nonspecific low back pain um, with uh, associated myofascial spasm, um, he's got manageable constipation. Um, he had manageable constipation, but it's been increasing as his opiates have been um, going up. Um, side effect? Well, we know it's a side effect, right? Is it a side effect to come off of your opioids? Not necessarily, but it is side effect. So he's starting to develop some side effects. Um, low testosterone could be related to chronic opioid use, could be related to something else, but, it, you know, it's part of the, piz, uh, the puzzle um, that you have to um, take into, into account low libido, is that now because of depression, or is it because he's chronic opioid use and he's got low testosterone? Again, another piece of the puzzle, just to think about. Um, He's at high risk for continued opiate tolerance. He continues to escalate his opiates just to try and get the same effect, right? He's dependent on it, definitely at continued risk for opiate tolerance. Worsening depression, isolation, high risk for that. And then um, at definitely high risk for further reduction of activities. So all things you want to think about when you're developing the treatment plan for him. All right? So you really want to look at managing Mr. Smith, even though he seems like a a really kind of classic, easy, chronic low back pain. He's at high risk for developing a lot of uh, other things that are going to decapacitate him and not give him a quality of life. So you have to start thinking about multimodal management possibly either decreasing or getting rid of the opioids if possible. And you wanna focus on that biopsychosocial model that I talked about, right? So think about what are his expectations? You know, is, he, is there a secondary gain here? Is he really not having um, good communication, good relations, he's got a new boss? Maybe, I'm just throwing this out hypothetically, is there a reason he doesn't wanna to return to work? Or is it really just because of pain? So looking at that whole picture, which I know is real easy in a 15 minute visit. I know it is, I know it is. You want to talk um, about uh, ongoing opiate use and risk stratify. So if this is um, a patient that you decide, okay, well, you know, we can can go ahead and we can modify some of the side effects that you're having with your opiates by doing X, Y, and Z, and we're going to keep you on opioid therapy, and I'm going to be the practitioner prescribing it, or I'm going to send you back to your referring doctor and give them recommendations, you need to address the, the whole REMS thing and monitoring. Right? You don't want to just keep escalating or keep his current dose of medication without having that discussion, particularly in this day and age. Um, and then you want to make sure that you um, manage uh, any kind of side effects that he's having. So we have other medications to manage constipation. We have other medications to manage uh, low testosterone. Um, that's fine. That's, that's a treatment approach that you can consider. Um, and you also want to educate him, at, particularly as he continues to escalate his opiates, about opiate withdrawal, right? Again, a young guy with not a lot of other comorbidities other than hypertension, um, is it going to be life-threatening for him or dangerous? No, probably just very uncomfortable. But if nobody else has had that conversation, if you don't have that conversation or you, know, you don't know what opioid withdrawal looks like and you're writing chronic opioids, shame on you. right? You need to know what that looks like. So you can educate the patient. The patient's not fearful, and you're doing your due diligence. And you do the same if you were prescribing any other medication. If you prescribe insulin chronically, do you have that conversation about what it means, you know, if you overdose on your insulin or you don't use enough insulin, right? So you have those conversations. You'd be surprised how many of our colleagues don't, particularly our surgical colleagues, right? They figure that the patient's going to have the medication for two weeks max, right? Two weeks might be enough time for a patient to then develop a, dependa- a, a, um, a dependence on it and then go through acute withdrawal, and that's scary. Um, and then you wanna have the discussion about non-opioid analgesics, okay? Cognitive behavioral therapy, structured focal physical therapy, other modalities that we had talked about. With him, with the mild depression, knowing that he's at increased increased risk, you probably, at the very least, wanna get a evaluation by a mental health provider and figure out what else is going on with him. And then it may not require anything more than just some counseling, episodic counseling. Interventions for him, I think that trigger point injections could be quite effective, right? He really, you could do some facet injections that might require a referral to an interventionalist that can do it under fluoroscopy, but you you could consider that. It might help him. We do have more advanced therapies for folks that are responsive to facet joint injections or medial branch blocks um, for longevity of pain relief, so you could consider that. So I really kind of talked to you about the referrals already. Any additional tests that you would want to think on him? So you've got a FlexX from five years ago when he first hurt his back. Anything else you could think about? Right. So how many of you would want to do an MRI? No radicular symptoms? Okay. How many of you would want to reimage? just doing a a simple X-ray, like a FlexX X-ray? just to see if things have changed. I'd probably go, at this point, just do an x-ray. It's pretty simple, right? And it will give you, It will. it's not going to tell you all soft tissue, but I really don't think he's got a neural impingement. I'm not so concerned about that, right? I know that he's got the medial branches in the facet joints are irritated, but that could be for a whole host of reasons. What is an MRI going to give you? I'm not going to send him to surgery, right? So you don't need to do an MRI at this point. But it wouldn't be unreasonable to say, you know, he's not as responsive to, to therapy anymore. He seems to be getting worse functionally. I could justify doing another x ray for sure. All right, six months later, he's, he experiences sharp shooting pain down his leg. Okay, and then he had one incidence of bladder incontinence. And he can't sleep, and he's, leave, he's left work. Right, you do your repeat assessment, do your physical exam again, or you? do you have neural impingement signs? Would you want an MRI now? Yes, of course you would, yeah, of course you would, of course you would. Um, Particularly, if he didn't have the bowel incontinence, would you get an MRI? You could, I mean, it kind of depends, right? If it just had this one sh- I mean, people can get radiculopathy and not have a disc, disc bulge. They've just got some accumulation of something there, inflammation, whatever. It might subside. It will probably subside. I mean, if we we read the low back pain literature, we do much more than we really need to. We treat the expectations of the patient than we do actually what what needs to be done. But the fact that he had the bowel incontinence with everything else, I would probably get an MRI on him. Um, Am I worried about having to send him to surgery right now or a uh, neurology consult, neurosurgery consult? I don't know, I mean, the bladder incontinence thing, it could have been coincidental and not, you know. What, what would be other things that you would ask for? What would be some of the other red flags you'd ask for? Right, does he have standal anesthesia? Does he have any weakness, right? So your physical exam's gonna tell you a lot of stuff, right? Is one leg weaker than the other? At this point, he's probably not got any muscle atrophy, but if this was chronic, you know, and you see muscle atrophy or you see foot drop or something, then you probably are going to send him expeditiously over for a neurosurgery consult. All right. Bingo. All right, so three weeks later, he's scheduled for an L5-S1 decompression. Um, Are you concerned about his postoperative pain management? Yeah. Yeah right, for all of those things that we talked about. He's got risk factors for not doing well. He's um, got chronic opioid dependence. He's got anxiety. He's probably got more anxiety now, um, maybe some more depression now. Um, Is he catastrophizing? I mean, you only know that by kind of, you know, talking to him and see if he perseverates on everything. But you want to preemptively talk to him about, these are the things that we're going to do, Um, I will make a two-week follow-up post-surgery. Talk to the surgeon if you can. Talk to the anesthesia provider if you can. Just make sure that you package him up nicely so that he feels comfortable going to surgery. You're going to have reasonable outcomes uh, uh, perioperatively, and then he um, feels well cared for, that he's got a support system, even if he doesn't need to come back and see you in that two weeks, that he's got enough medications to get him through that initial course. Um, If you came to my lecture at 7 a.m., we talked a lot about preemptive analgesia and medications that you can use, and if you didn't come, then you've got the slides on your app, so don't worry about it. Um, Talking about medications that you can use preemptively for someone that you know is high risk for chronic pain or for poor outcomes intraoperatively. So you can use, even though he said to you, I use 600 milligrams three times a day, gabapentin didn't work for me, okay, I'm not saying you have to be on it for lifelong. I'm not saying I'm gonna take away your opiates. I'm saying I'm going to give you 1,200 milligrams two hours before surgery with a sip of water, and then I'm gonna keep you on it maybe even up to six weeks after surgery because um, I know that this is important, and I know that the literature tells me that it will decrease the incidence of chronic pain, which is highly, you know, well, he's got chronic pain by definition, and uh, and I know that you're gonna hopefully use less opioids. Um, I don't think he's got an opioid problem at this point. right? He told us he had surgery a number of years ago. He only used two Vicodin, so at least at that time I didn't really worry about an opioid dependence, I didn't worry about an addiction problem. So I have nothing that tells me right now I'm worried about addiction. So I'm gonna give him what he needs to make sure he gets through surgery. I'm gonna talk to the surgeon, I'm gonna talk to the anesthesiologist or or, um, support the patient in his needs to get him through surgery and make sure that there's a discharge and a follow-up plan. Um, So he has surgery, he was given two weeks of medications by a surgeon, um, and he's scheduled to see you in the clinic in two weeks, but he's calling the office in one week, stating that he's run out of his oxycodone, and he is not taking his gabapentin any longer because he didn't feel it helped his pain. Are any kind of red flags going off in your head? So he's not being compliant. Now, maybe he wasn't compliant or he ran out of his opiates early because he really just wasn't given enough. How many of you post, have seen patients post surgery and the, um, the surgical team writes, you know, two to four tablets every four hours as needed and they give them 30 tablets, right? You're like, this was a week's supply. So, you know, kind of do a little bit more investigation. Don't say, oh my goodness, he's being, you know, non compliant, he's opioid seeking. You know, just think about the whole picture. But what I don't like is that he chose not to use his gabapentin after we had that discussion about why it's important, right? So that's really where I see the noncompliance. So again, more education, all right? So would you discharge him from your clinic? Would you just say, I don't have time to deal with this. Please go. How many of you would discharge him from clinic at this point? Oh, you're so dishonest. <laughs> There's at least one of you that would. <laughs> would just, or you just write the prescription say, you know, go on it. Um, you know, you just, particularly, it depends upon your experience. If you've had patients like this in your clinic before, and this is like the fifth in a month, you're just like, I'm done with it. I don't even want to deal with this because I think those red flags go off in your head. We have a lot of bias. We all bring bias with us, so that's okay. It's just keeping it in check. Would you tell him to get his medications from his surgeons until he's scheduled to see you next week? A lot of people probably would, a, pro- a lot of probably would. Um, you know, for me, it's really, I expect the surgeon, now I have a communication with the surgeon, but I anticipate the patient's going to have post-surgical pain, and I, I anticipate that they're going to write the opioids until they come back to my clinic. This is a different scenario, but, you know, that's what I do in real practice. Um, would you e-prescribe additional weeks' worth of oxycodone to the pharmacy? You're brave. A lot of people would. A lot of people would. Okay. Um, or would you see him back in clinic sooner? So this t- so he's calling the clinic on Friday morning, and you've got 20 patients that you need to see on your docket. Thank goodness he called in the morning as opposed to the evening, right? Um, where you probably would have e-prescribed him some medications. Um, so he's calling in the morning. Would you make a hole in your schedule to actually see him, knowing you're going to have to spend more time with him, right? It's tough. I mean there's no necessarily right answer and I really, unless you had good justification for whatever you chose to do, you know, God be it for me to say you're doing the wrong thing. But um, it's challenging. All right, so this is what we did. Um, Oh, what happened there? Did I go back? Okay, Um, oh maybe I should've put the, okay, so we saw him back in clinic Oh, I know what I did. Okay, yeah, there we go. Okay, sorry. I forgot what my slides looked like. I submitted them like months ago, and they wouldn't let me look at them or change them. All right, so over the next three, so you see him back in clinic, and you sit down with him, and you tell him that um, these are your expectations of him. He either says that that's going to be fine, or he's going to say no, and you can give him a tapered dose of medication and send him on his merry way, Reeducate him about the proper use of his medication. Make sure that he has what he needs. Listen to him tell his story. Maybe he didn't give enough. Maybe it was subadequate. They didn't have him well-managed in the acute care setting, so he needed more. Um, that's okay. Explain to him, again, why you want him to take the gabapentin. Is there another reason? Well, did it decrease his libido even more? Did it cause more constipation, which it can. You know, Is there some other reason, but he's just telling you it didn't work, that he's choosing not to use it? So explore that a little bit more in depth. All right, so he gets his prescription, he goes, he comes back. Three months later, he continues to call in for early opioid refills. Primary healing has, has resolved. He should be doing better. He should be using less opioids, not more. Um, he presented to the local emergency room on one occasion for unmanaged pain, right? So he's really, he's breaking the contract that you already reviewed with him a couple of months prior when he called in for early refills. He's been non-compliant of your, he continues to be non-compliant of your recommendations for non-opioid medications. Um, and uh, your um, advice to have him get mental health services, um, he didn't adhere to at all. So now what? Would you safely wean his opiates? So you've now had a treating relationship with him, say roughly six months, he saw you pre-surgery, there was a reason that he was having worsening pain, he had surgery, he should be doing better. Do you have time in your clinic to manage this? Do you have addiction medicine services uh, at your disposal? Do you have mental health services at your disposal? Can you adequately manage him? Or do you wanna just wean his medications and send him on his way? If you choose to wean, safely wean, right? So give him an adequate weaning schedule, maybe see him back every couple weeks. Don't give him a six-week taper, give him all the medications all at once, and say, you know, we're done. Because that's unrealistic. could refer him to addiction medicine or psychiatry. So, if you choose, I would definitely, if you choose to take him off his medications or not prescribe anymore, that you make sure that he has the mental health kind of referral. If he chooses to go, it's his business. If you know, but um, at least you've made, you've done your due diligence to take care of this patient and keep him safe. Um, would you continue to see him without opiate therapy? So say you decide to safely wean him off his medications, plus minus he, well, say he he goes and he agrees to see an addictionologist, gets put on Suboxone, or he sees a mental health provider and realizes he was treating stress with his opioids, but he still wants to have a treating relationship with you. Would you try and manage him, plus minus knowing that he has an addiction history with non-opioid pharmacology? knowing that that's always going to be an issue, right? It's always going to be something, particularly if he's got a primary addiction disorder, which he really didn't exp- you know, express that behavior previously. Maybe it was just episodic. Um, I think you guys could still have a good treating relationship. All right, so we talked about chronic pain. We talked about acute on chronic pain um, in this case study. We'll go quicker through the next one. We talked about uh, managing post-surgical pain with a uh, patient with chronic pain. We talked about opioid management. We talked about um, use and misuse versus frank addiction, and then the uh, importance of uh, multimodal uh, pain management, um, management in the biopsychosocial model. Can you believe we did all of that in that one case study? All right, so this is Mrs. Smith. No relation. She's a uh, 68-year-old female with widespread pain as a result of breast cancer. Uh, that had metastasized to her lymph nose, to the vertebrae, to her right shoulder, left hip, um, and uh, she was referred to you by her oncologist to provide palliative uh, pain management. Um, She uh, has a chief complaint of radicular low back pain. She has right um, uh, shoulder pain focal and left hip pain focal. Um, uh, Symptoms include nausea, constipation, poor sleep, depression, extreme fatigue. All right, this is her pain diagram. So um, her onset of pain um, was uh, a year prior. It's become more um, progressive of late. It's in the locations that we talked about. Um, They all hurt pretty equally, but her low back pain um, is the most uh, problematic. That's been the most uh, chronic. um, Things that help, it, the medications do help it. She is having side effects um, as well as other symptoms that, that I mentioned in the previous slide. Um, she hasn't tried a lot, she's tried a little bit of physical therapy, um, and, uh, and uh, that's about it, and then her medications, okay? So history of hypertension, chronic anemia, could, could you know play into that um, chronic um, fatigue that she has, or that extreme fatigue that she has, but you don't want to discount other reasons that she's uh, extremely fatigued. Depression, which also could worsen fatigue or um, promote fatigue. Uh, She uh, has a history of uh, metastatic breast cancer, persistent pain. She had a mastectomy five years ago with a lymph node dissection, a bunionectomy 20 years ago. Otherwise, surgical history is pretty benign. Uh, She doesn't use substances, and she's got a long, stable uh, marriage uh, and uh, children and a grandson. So... When we talk about family history, and I think a lot of our colleagues will skip over family history, why is family and social history so important? Because it really identifies for you if that patient has a strong social support. So a lot of the things that we do, even you know pharmacological therapies, really require that the patient has somebody to help them along that treatment course. If you were in the um, lecture that preceded this one about the use of uh, uh, naloxone for um, opiate, accidental opiate overdose, if you have that patient that is all by themselves and you're choosing to prescribe opiates that you know could somehow put them in a compromised situation, you know that could be a dangerous treatment approach. But if it was somebody that had strong social support or family in the home, you might be more uh, liberal to use medications knowing that there was a safety factor. All right, she's on lisinopril. She's on fluoxetine. She's on a fentanyl patch. Um, pretty significant dose for a 68-year-old. Um, but it's it's surprising. Um, my colleague says it's it's uh, it's it's. What does she say? It's surprising how hard it is to kill people. That it's harder to kill people than you think, Michelle Philman, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so people really get tolerant to these medications very quickly, and so um, that that is an effective dose for her. Yes. Okay. I'll be right. Okay, okay, okay. we got to be really quick. Um, all right, so she's on her medicines. Um, these are her scans. She has a PET scan. She um, is positive for anemia. Again, could uh, uh, go into that chronic disease state. Her exam is pretty benign. Um, she does have some um, upper extremity uh, weakness and pain, which could, uh, you know, she may have some um, involvement of the brachial plexus with that, uh, that shoulder tumor. Um, she does have trigger, point, uh, uh, trigger points on palpation, Um, and uh, she ambulates very slowly. She uses a walker, so she's at a fall fall risk. So any medications that you give her that might be um, cognitively altering may um, put her even at higher risk for fall. Um, And uh, for the most part, um, she's got normal sensory um, exam. Um, Biopsychosocial model, just like we talked about. And uh, your assessment. So, again, every patient, be it a cancer patient or being a low back pain patient, you want to still incorporate that whole um, um, biopsychosocial model. She's a 68-year-old, widespread pain, breast cancer, um, metastasized. Um, she's been given six months to live, uh, less than six months to live. Um, her pain is worse in her hip and her low back pain. She's opiate-tolerant. Uh, She struggles with the depression, anxiety, poor sleep, and all those other symptoms that we talked about. So um, what are some of your initial thoughts and concerns? Well, your initial thoughts and concerns I kind of went through with you. She um, is already compromised, right? She's got strong family support, but she's already compromised. You have to be careful of the medications that you give her that might make her at higher risk for fall, altered cognition. Um, And uh, your initial thoughts may be um, if you... um, could find an interventionalist, are there some um, focal injections that you could do to limit the medications that you necessarily have to give her? So if it's um, shoulder pain or it's ridiculous low back pain, if it doesn't go into a tumor, can you do injection therapies for this patient? Right. So something to think about, but you have to have those resources available. She's at risk for failure to thrive, opiate um, misuse, worsening pain, social isolation, not so much a problem. So we talked all about the biopsychosocial model. If you are going to do medications, even for a 68-year-old palliative care, you need to talk about the risks, the side effects, make sure it's safe and it makes sense in that um, situation, that you've had the discussion about non-opiate analgesics, right? Because there are medications that you can use that will be helpful for her and hopefully be opiate-sparing, and you want to be careful about the cognitive um, effects of any medication that you give her, opiates and others. Okay, we talked about that. All right, so um, you, uh, you have to gain an understanding about her fears, you need to be present for her. Um, referrals to either palliative care, if that's available, or mental health to talk about fear of dying and what are some of her issues and why is she feeling so depressed and anxious, is she worried about that, or are there bigger issues within the family that she has to worry about? Um, you wanna make sure that you do have full disclosure on all the medications that you choose to prescribe for your patient, again, and the side effects, and talk to the family. Right? Maybe you want to um, consider reducing her fentanyl patch and think about giving her something more that she can use episodically if her pain is more episodic than, than chronic consistent. Um, and she may be a candidate for some um, uh, sophisticated uh, intervention like an intrathecal pain pump, which will alter her cognitively, let you, allow you to use less um, opiate per dosing and may do well with that, particularly if she's not an anticoagulation coagulant. You want to think about um, your behavioral management strategies. Again, for her, physical therapy is paramount, because she's at huge risk for fall, right? So you need to make sure that she's got the assistive devices that she needs, that she's able to ambulate, to mobilize, and she's not at further risk. Um, And then your injections, as we talked about. All right, and then in this situation, particularly when you have an oncology patient, you want to make sure that you get the team you know, circle the, circle the um, wagons. You want to get the team in your court and um, deliver coordinated care in an interdisciplinary fashion. All right, so these are all people at your disposal. If you are unfamiliar with it, get to know who's in your, in your community. All right, so we went through that one a little bit faster. I apologize. Um, but uh, we talked about chronic pain again, which you already did, chronic pain of disease, opioid management we reviewed. We belabored the review of it in the last um, um, case study. Uh, We talked about a management of acute pain versus persistent pain using short-acting opiates versus long-acting opiates, um, and then the importance of multimodal interdisciplinary care in the complex pain patient like this, uh, and uh, maybe getting palliative care to assist. All right, and here's some resources for you, and, you know, I'm one minute late. Thank you for your attention.